reading from Judges chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This morning is going to be the last sermon in the series on Judges, which has been somewhat abbreviated. We certainly didn't cover all of the book, and we're not going to cover the last couple of chapters that follow after the Samson story, which is found in Judges 13 to 16 next Sunday. If the Lord is willing, we're going to start a new series on the book of Romans, which is something I have long been wanting to do. And uh, that series will be called The Romans Road to Salvation. But hopefully as we go through the book, we'll see that the salvation that Romans lead us, leads us to is something ever so much bigger than what we may have been led to believe if we've ever seen a gospel tract that was printed on the front saying the Romans road to salvation. So I hope that uh, that will be a blessing and I hope that many of you will be here and uh, be ready to hear what the Lord has to say to us from the book of Romans. If we begin the story of Samson, not in chapter 14, but in chapter 13, verse 1, there's this dreadful sameness to all of the other stories that we have looked at in the book of Judges. In Judges 13, verse 1, we read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And I wonder if the scribe who was writing all of this down when he was recording this history just thought, Again? Really? Because it seems like every story in this book began with those words. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. It should go without saying at this point. It's not an external oppression that's being forced upon them by the powers of evil. God was not happy with the fact that his people had turned away from him once again. And so he gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now the thing is, this is all very familiar, but there's something missing here too. Something we have come to expect, as Dale Ralph Davis wrote. There is no statement between verse 1 and verse 2 about Israel crying out to Yahweh in their distress. We've seen that cycle through the book of Judges where the people turn away from the living God and they pursue and worship the gods of the land and then God grows angry with them and he gives them into the hand of their enemies and then after some period of time, they look to God and they cry out in repentance and say, God, please deliver us from the Midianites. Do something. We can't stand 
this oppression. But at this point, Israel has gotten to the place, evidently, where they are quite comfortable with the oppression. They have been given into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And it seems so normal to them. I think this is the kind of thing that the writer of the Hebrews was writing about in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, when he said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What better description of God's covenant people, Israel, when they have come to the point where they've been in bondage to the Philistines for 40 years, they are not crying out to God for deliverance. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 15, after Samson had made a general nuisance of himself by burning both the standing and the stored grain of the Philistines, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? And one would hope somebody would have said, wait a minute, when we say that out loud, it sounds terrible. But they didn't. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done? And furthermore, they said to him, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Not, Samson, you know, we've been observing what you've been doing across the land here, and it seems like you're having some success with our oppressors, so why don't you step up and become our leader and help to deliver us from the Philistines because they should not be ruling over us, not here in the land that God promised on oath to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not what they say. Rather, we have come, Samson, to give you into the hands of our oppressors. That's the deceitfulness of sin. It starts with just a little compromise, what the writer to the Hebrews describes actually as an evil and unbelieving heart. And it ends up with full subservience. As in Romans 6, verse 16, do you not know That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But if Israel doesn't care, if they haven't cried out at this point for deliverance, then why does God raise up Samson? What's happening in this remarkable and very often misunderstood story. By the way, if you've seen the movie on Pure Flix, I would highly recommend just put that out of your head and read Judges uh, 13 to 16 over several times. Um, There's no similarity. What's happening in this story, though, was already in the reading that Josh did for us this morning, Judges 14.4. Samson's parents had opposed the very idea of him taking a wife from among the uncircumcised Philistines, and they did so with good reason. 
This was contrary to the law of God. Samson was not allowed, never mind being a Nazarite, being an Israelite. Samson was not allowed, under the law of God, to take a wife from among the Philistines. But his father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So once again, we have to note this is not the story of the mighty Samson. We're not meant or even allowed to think of him as the great hero and deliverer of God's people. But this is the danger, as one commentator has written, and it's very clear that this is the danger if you've seen the movie. Davis wrote, Samson is such a rollicking, entertaining, break-the-mold fellow that we may become preoccupied with him. Even so, Davis goes on, we must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up to eclipse the God who saves. And that was true all through the book of Judges. God raised up Gideon and Deborah and Barak and others, Jephthah. Jehu, others, that, that he raised up to save, in a limited sense, his people from the oppression of the enemy. And we get focused in on the people in those stories, but we must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up to eclipse the God who saves. Therefore, we want to develop the teaching of Judges 13 in terms of what Yahweh is doing. And what Yahweh is doing throughout Judges chapter 13 and throughout the whole story of Samson is not so much delivering his people. When this story is over, the Philistines will still technically be in charge. And that probably won't be a problem because his people had not asked for deliverance and evidently they didn't care all that much. But God is seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And yes, Samson will, we'll see in a moment, begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He'll begin that process, but that process would take until fairly late in the reign of King David before Israel was completely free of this perennial enemy, so generations, to accomplish this work. But Samson would begin this work, so there is grace here. In seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, God is at the very same time showing his kindness to his people Israel, just as he shows his kindness to every one of us every day of our lives when he does not immediately deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. God would be perfectly just and right and fair if he chose to do so. It's pure grace that he does not. The fact that he allows us to take another breath, to live another day, is the kindness and graciousness of our God. How we take that is the issue for us, and it was the issue for Israel as well. Now, the Apostle Paul asked a question in Romans chapter 2, and we're going to be dealing with this at greater length when we get to it in our series. But Romans chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Do you suppose, O men, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape, <clears throat> escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume 
on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, just because we have grown comfortable with a particular sin and because God doesn't seem to be pouring out his wrath upon us at this particular moment, sometimes we have this tendency to assume then that really God must be okay with that. And if that's our assumption, then we're missing the point. God's grace, God's kindness is not God saying, I know that you're all vile sinners, I'm just going to be okay with that. It's God saying, I know that you're all sinners, and God so loved the world. This is how God loved the world. This is the manner in which he loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That's the grace of God. But there's another kind of grace where God says, in the meantime, I'm going to give you time. I'm going to be kind. And hopefully that kindness will lead you to repentance. God's grace is not meant as an indicator that we or our culture are on the right side of history. It's meant to lead us to repentance. Speaking of God's promise to judge the ungodly, the Apostle Peter once wrote, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. There were people in Peter's day who were looking at the promises of Scripture where God said, if you persist in this disobedience and faithlessness, a day will come when you will be judged. And they're saying, well, he hasn't come yet. He hasn't judged us yet. Looks like God's not all that concerned. And Peter says, no, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's kindness and grace in the story of Samson should not be interpreted as an indicator that God was okay with his covenant people serving the false gods of Canaan or even coming to some sort of an accommodation, a tolerance with those evil and false gods. It should be interpreted as God giving his people time for repentance because that's what he was doing even as he was preserving the nation for the eventual arrival of King David, who would finally deliver his people from the Philistines, and beyond that, of Jesus Christ, the greater David who would accomplish eternal redemption for all the people of God so that they may find deliverance through repentance and faith in his name. This was the purpose of God's manifest grace in the days of Samson, his patience, his allowing history to continue to flow in a direction that was very contrary to his word, and it remains the purpose for his gracious tolerance of our world today. Because as Paul said at Athens, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, under the new covenant, under the gospel of Jesus Christ, he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Even so, his kindness and patience for us as individuals, as a church, as a nation, and as a culture should be seen as God giving us time to do what he commands all people everywhere to do. And for us as the church, we should perceive it as God giving us time to call all people everywhere to join us in this repentance and turning to the Lord. So as the commentator said, we need to understand the teaching of Judges 13 and of the whole of this book, not in terms of epic heroes and amazing stories, but in terms of the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Judges is not a book about the judges per se, it's a book about the providence of God and how God has been working through all of these times of ignorance and rebellion and open sin and idolatry to accomplish his purpose, to bring his Savior into the world. And God is at work in all things, not the purpose of him who works some things occasionally, according to the counsel of his will, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So for today, I want us to just consider a couple of things about the life of Samson. First of all, that it's never too soon. And secondly, that it is never too late to be set apart to the Lord. This is evident first in Judges 13, verses 3 to 5, when the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, that would be be Manoah's wife and Samson's mother. And he said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now given the culture and the times, that probably came as really good news to Manoah's wife and to Manoah as well. Undoubtedly, they had wanted to have children and had been pursuing that actively, and it just wasn't happening for them. The angel of the Lord comes along and says, you know what, now you're going to have a son. The next part might have been something they were less enthusiastic about. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Just a brief pause here. Jesus was a Nazarene. A Nazarene was someone from the vicinity of Nazareth and had nothing whatsoever to do with being a Nazarite. One of the reasons that we see pictures of Jesus with really long hair is because people assume, well, he was a Nazarite, so he must have had long hair because Nazarites didn't cut their hair. Jesus, as far as we know from Scripture, never took a Nazarite vow. He was a Nazarene. He was from a particular region in Galilee of the Gentiles. A Nazarite, on the other hand, is someone who has made a very special vow to the Lord. And usually this was for a limited period of time. Someone would go up to the priests and say, I want to make a Nazarite vow for, say, six months. And the priest would lead them through the process of making the vow and would make clear all the requirements for them while they were under the vow. They were to drink no wine or strong drink of any kind, to eat nothing unclean, 
and no razor was to touch their head. Thing is, they were to shave their head as they began the vow. So if you made this vow for six months or even a year, your hair wouldn't have been particularly long at the time when you went back for your purification. Your hair was then shaved, you made an offering, the offering was burned, and your hair was thrown into the fire along with the offering that you made. So what's happening here is really unusual. Manoah and his wife were chosen to be the parents of this lesser, to say the very least, savior with a small s, Samson. They did not choose this course for their lives. God chose them. And notice that. God doesn't come and say, hey, you know, Mrs. Manoah, um, would you be willing to bear a son who might help begin the process of delivering God's people from the hands of the Philistines? Because if you are willing, we can make that happen for you. The angel of the Lord comes and says, this is it. You have been chosen by God. You will bear a son. And furthermore, while you are carrying that child, you, Manoah's wife, will not drink any wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean because your son Samson has been chosen to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. In other words, Samson too, like his parents, was chosen. He was elect before he was born. He was predestined. His life belonged to God from the very moment that he was conceived. He will be a Nazarite from the womb, and that will impose certain restrictions on him throughout the course of his life. You can f find those in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. We won't take time to read them now. But because Samson was supposed to be a Nazarite from the womb, that meant his mother was bound to the same Nazarite restrictions as long as Samson was in utero. In other words, if she drank wine or strong drink, then Samson would be drinking it through her, and that would be a violation of his Nazarite vow that God made on his behalf. And once again, if anyone ever asks you, when does life begin? As a Christian, there is only one answer to that question. Life begins at conception, period. This is a word of the Lord. Samson's mother had to observe the restrictions of a Nazarite vow because Samson, who had already been called and chosen and predestined, was within her. She had to do it for him. And that being said, it is never too early to set ourselves and our children apart to the service of Christ because that's what Nazarite means. It just means sanctified, set apart. And it's with very little fanfare that scripture tells us that Samson and Jacob and Esau and Samuel and Jeremiah and John the Baptist, among others, were all chosen. They were set apart to God before they were born. And the reason it's with little fanfare is precisely because this is not the exception. This isn't even the exception that proves the rule, as people sometimes say. This is the rule. If we are believers, 
if we are in Christ, if we are Christians, however you want to frame that, then as Paul wrote in Ephesians, it is because God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you are in Christ, it is because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy, that is to be set apart, and to be blameless before him. If we believe that, if we believe that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, then it's never too early to consecrate our children or ourselves to the service of Christ. That's why in our understanding here in this church, believing parents baptize their little ones. It's not that we are offering them to God or even dedicating them to God. What we're doing when we come to the font is acknowledging through the sacrament that they are already his. Children are the heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. And because they are already his, we and they are under obligation then to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn away from sin and to live in obedience to God. So it's never too early to bring them to church. You should start bringing your kids to church about nine months before they're born, as a matter of fact. It's too, never too early to teach them to love and serve the Lord their God. It's never too early to indoctrinate them. And I know that's a harsh word, but I use it deliberately. To put doctrine into them, to indoctrinate them into the holy scriptures, which are able to make them wise unto salvation. When your children are little, you don't set before them a cup of wholesome, nutritious milk or something else if you're not into milk, and a cup of poison, and say, you know what, you choose. I, I, I know the poison's kind of bubbly and blue, and it looks kind of sweet and wonderful, but you choose. You don't do that. You put before them the holy scriptures which are able to make them wise unto salvation, and you tell them, this is the truth, this is the way, walk in it. The time will come when they're going to hear all the other garbage that's out there in the world. But that's not your job. Your job is to speak of these things when they sit down and when they walk in the way and when you're sitting at the dinner table. Bind them as signs on your hands and on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It is never too early. It's never too early to teach them that they belong to God, body and soul, in life and in death. You don't have to wait until someone has come of age and has made a decision for Christ in order to start teaching them the catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
teach them that as soon as they're able to say those words and let them keep on saying them until they understand them. It's never too early for believing children to stand and profess their faith in Christ. Because if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and profess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. And frankly, Christian parents need to be determined to do this long before they become parents, long before they are even married, not only to baptize their children and to acknowledge that they belong to God, but to, as we say in our baptismal vow, to do all we can to teach these children and to have them taught the doctrine of salvation. If you ever stood at the front and baptized a child, or if you were a child who was baptized at the front of this church or any other, that's what your parents, that's what the church was promising. That we would do all that we can to teach them and to have them taught the doctrine of salvation. Samson's mother and father were not allowed to wait until Samson had come of age or had reached the age of accountability, or again, however you want to frame that before teaching him the meaning of the Nazarite vow that God had imposed on him from before he was born. They had to teach him every day by word and by deed, by their own example of covenant obedience, what it meant for him to be a Nazarite who was set apart unto God and Christian parents should do absolutely no less. Our children should be taught always that they belong to God by covenant and they should be taught what belonging to God means. The story of Samson's birth should convince us that it's never too early. The story of his death can teach us that it's also never too late to turn to God in repentance and faith. I point this out to say that in spite of his parents' endeavors during his childhood, Samson's life, if, if you read the rest of it, don't see it as a hero story. See it as a slow motion train wreck. And actually to call it that is to insult slow motion train wrecks everywhere. We don't have time this morning to pursue all the details. You can read them for the, yourselves. But here's the brackets. At the end of Judges 13, we're told, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Then something happened between the last verse of chapter 13 and the first verse of chapter 14 as we read earlier. Samson got into the habit of going down to Timnah. And while he was there, he saw a woman of the Philistines. And he demanded of his parents, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And that's been a problem with Israel throughout this book. Every time they have a little space, every time they have a little peace, they turn from the living God to do what is right in their own eyes. And as we've seen a couple of times now, what was right in their eyes was what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
They have consistently done what was right in their own eyes, which has led them to disaster. It's no less true here. Samson's desire for this Philistine woman at Timnah is going to set in motion a spiral of progressive covenant breaking. Step by step by step, Samson is going to violate every single prohibition in his Nazarite vow. He's just going to start turning away, and it starts here. Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. And that pattern of progressive covenant breaking will not end until seduced by Delilah, who's another woman altogether. That's four, at least four women later in Samson's life. And when he is seduced by Delilah, he would tell her his whole heart, saying to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And just a quick word again, the secret of Samson's strength was never in his hair. It was in his consecration to God as a Nazarite. And all through his story, we read when he needed to be strong for something, some mighty deed, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. We've all seen the books and the movies and the comics and we picture Samson, you know, like some kind of a Marvel superhero who's so muscle-bound he can't reach the table to cut his own meat. It's probably not remotely true. There's no indication that his strength came from his physical body. His strength came from the Lord when the Holy Spirit came upon him and it gave him the ability to do things no human being, no matter how buff, no matter how strong, would have been able to do. When he picked up those gates and carried them away in the one story, you can read it later, he carried them about 50 kilometers. It's not something any human being could have done. His strength was in his consecration to God as a Nazarite, not in his hair, but in number six, we read that in a Nazarite's hair, quote, his separation to God is on his head. So what happened here was not Samson losing his magic hairdo. It was Samson deciding once and for all to put his love for this Philistine woman completely ahead of his consecration to God. I don't care anymore what God says. You're the one I want, Delilah. No razor's ever touched my head. If a razor touches my head, I'll lose my strength. And it's an old, old, and oft-repeated story. We covet what we see, said one modern novelist. And we go out and we look at the world and we covet what we see and we compromise to have it And in the end, it costs. And this costs Samson everything. Delilah arranged for the services of a cosmetologist with a very soft touch, evidently. Some people, you know, it's a riddle who cut Samson's hair. Everybody says, Delilah, no. She called for a man who came in and cut his hair while he was asleep. And the man was able to cut his hair without waking him up. And then Delilah began to torment him. When the Philistines came to take him, she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, which she had said on a couple of other occasions. 
And Samson just threw off whatever restraints they had bound him with and went out and gave him a nice butt kicking. But here he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know, and this is the important thing, that the Lord had left him. It was never his hair. It was always the Lord. And then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. And whether or not you've seen the movie, you know the rest of the story. Time went by and eventually the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God. By the way, throughout the book of Judges, we've been talking about the Baals. Well, Dagon was considered to be the father of Baal. So this is the big one. This isn't the little local sacrifice offered every time there's a new moon on the high place behind Gideon's house where his father has an altar to the Baal. This is the big annual feast when all the lords of the Philistines come together at the temple to worship Dagon, their god. And this temple's big. There are 3,000 people gathered there, sacrificing to Dagon, never dreaming that they themselves were about to become the sacrifice. And they call for Samson to be brought in, and there, in the very last moments of a very sad life, Samson called upon God, and he acknowledged God as the true source of his strength. Judges 16, verse 28, Samson called to the Lord, And said, oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. It's not a very good repentance, but it's repentance in that Samson is now saying, God, my strength came from you. My hair has grown back, but that's not enough. Notice that, because some people say his hair had grown back. That means he was now strong again. It's not the point. The point is time went by. And Samson comes to this temple and he says, God, strengthen me. Just, just one last time. Give me the strength that you gave me all those other times in my life that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. So Samson's motive isn't great, but remember at the beginning, God was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And so God heard him and strengthened him. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed in his life. I want you to Put Samson in perspective here. He gets more press than most of the other judges. But if that's true, he killed 3,000 in his death. That means maybe 6,000-ish Philistines. When Gideon raised an army and pursued the Midianites, it was over 130,000 people that were driven away. So that's why the Philistines are not a non-issue now. Their leadership has been decimated. Their big temple to Dagon has fallen into rubble, which would have the priests of these pagan gods, whoever was left, asking questions. Well, if Israel's God is that much stronger than ours, we better be cautious here. 
And this killing more in his death than he killed in his life is better than he might have been hoping for. A month earlier when he was grinding grain in a Philistine prison. And again, this is grace. I don't have any trouble at all saying that. This is the grace of God to Samson. It's the grace of God to Israel. And through this story, it's the grace of God to us. God was seeking an occasion against the Philistines, and he found it. He does work all things after the counsel of his own will, even in a broken servant like Samson. But what a sad epitaph for a man who had been given so much. We'll never know what Samson could have been had he chosen to be faithful and obedient to God. He didn't, and God used him anyway. But how often can that be said of us? How often do we look back at our histories, maybe sad histories in some cases, and we look back with a certain wistfulness, and we wonder what might have been if only. And of course, there's nothing to be gained by either wistfulness or wonder. Maybe earlier in the sermon when I was talking about all those things for which it's never too early, some of us, some of you like me, we're thinking, well, that's very nice. It's never too early. I wish I had thought of it years or even decades ago. Then maybe I could have done something with that. The thing is, the grace of God is always there because the Lord is always there. As Psalm 145.18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So even at the end when everything seems broken and hopeless, for Samson, for the thief on the cross, for all those who have called on him in truth, God was near. For them, like us, it was never too soon to look to God in repentance and faith and find his grace to live in obedience to his word. And this is important because if you are a young person who is here or who is listening to this, it is not too soon. Today, while it is still called today, is the day for you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that God showed grace to Samson or that God showed grace to the thief on the cross and he allowed them to turn to him at the very end in the last moments of their life and to find grace, that is not a plan for your life. It's not meant to be. Not unless you're already at that point where you're at the very end as well. Is wherever we are and whatever the circumstances of our lives at this moment, whatever our age, whatever's going on, it is never too early, nor is it ever too late to call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth.